Two years ago, in early 2020, scientists and clinicians were scrambling to understand how COVID-19 affects the human body. They had their work cut out. The virus enters the body through ACE2 receptors, which are found in almost all major organs. The coronavirus's potential path of destruction was therefore vast. One of those researchers was a thrombosis expert called Professor Beverly Hunt. In May 2020, she told us here at Medical News Today that she had never seen such sticky blood as in COVID-19 patients. This observation was echoed by others as the pandemic took hold. One clinician noted that nurses couldn't even draw blood as it was clotting in the line. It quickly became clear that COVID-19 infections had an impact on the cardiovascular system. But how exactly does COVID-19 affect the heart and blood vessels? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Geit. This podcast is all about conversations, not just between me and experts, but between them as well. Today, we're exploring the cardiovascular manifestations of COVID-19 in its acute phase and as part of long COVID. First, to explore how COVID-19 affects the cardiovascular system during the initial infection, Maria Kahoot, Medical News Today's feature editor, spoke to Dr. Artur Fedorovsky. He's a professor of cardiovascular medicine at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Dr. Fedorovsky, thank you so much for your time today. So we know that early in the pandemic, doctors were seeing a lot of cardiovascular complications in the acute phase. Is that something that is still happening? I think what you mean is uh, a little bit older patients ending up at internal medicine wards or ICUs, having pneumonia or having some uh, cardiovascular complications just like pulmonary embolism or even myocardial infarction. They are still there. I've seen a lot of patients who developed COVID-19 in the past three, four months with heart failure, with myocardial infarction coming to our ward for these reasons, not for COVID-19. So it seems the course of events in COVID-19 has become radically milder. We have learned a lot over the past months how to deal prophylactically with these complications. So all the patients with cardiovascular risk factors are being treated with anticoagulants against blood clots, with anti-inflammatory agents as like cortisone, with antiviral drugs. So we have learned a lot how to fight the disease in the very beginning when the patients are very much affected. So it seems that we are pretty good at stopping the acute phase of COVID-19 in risk patients. Can I ask about some other symptoms such as arrhythmias and myocarditis? Because we hear a lot about that in some of the recent studies on the effects of COVID. Yes, of course, they are still there. Myocarditis may happen and not even myocarditis. You may have fluid production in your heart, what we call pericardium, your heart bag. So just around the heart. There, you may have fluid production that may literally squeeze your heart. So this is another complication. 
Just a couple of days ago, I saw a pregnant young woman affected by this fluid production around the heart. She got COVID-19 a few days before. So these complications are still there. They're not so very frequent, but they might be quite life-threatening. So all these patients should be recognized and should be hospitalized and treated accordingly, of course. They are still there. And how common are these manifestations, these cardiovascular manifestations in COVID? I wouldn't that give you some numbers, but I think that somewhere between 1% to 10% of infected individuals will develop all these complications. Myocarditis, pericarditis, and even blood clot building in your arteries. We are talking about very small blood clots in very small arteries. They are not so easy to detect, but some patients may report having blue fingers out of nowhere, just being infected a few days before, and this might be a sign of very small, tiny blood clots in your peripheral blood arteries. Do you think SARS-CoV-2 infects nerve cells and it infects heart cells? Or do you think there's some other reason for these effects? Oh, uh, absolutely. In the initial phase of the infection, when the original infection, what we call index infection, occurs when you get infected, when the virus enters your body and spreads within your body, then the virus can get to your nervous system, central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, to your heart, to your vessels, and especially in your respiratory system, in your lungs. We are pretty sure that the virus is there. Then what the body does is that the body recognizes this enemy and tries to get rid of it. And the immune system gets activated and eliminates the intruder. So sometimes the intruder may hide itself somewhere in some cells, and then evolve into a sleeping form, latent form, just sleeping somewhere, where hidden in some cells. And then the immune system cannot see it. But in some instances, the immune system cannot stop there. And the immune system believes that the intruder is still there and is trying to destroy all the parts of the body that are supposed to cover the intruder or to store the intruder. And there is another disease, which is well-known, hepatitis. When you get the primary infection with a virus, hepatitis virus, and then after a while, even if the virus is eliminated, the body may still believe that the virus is in your liver and is destroying your liver slowly, just leading to cirrhosis. So we are afraid that this prolonged long COVID reaction is a prolonged reaction to the original infection. And to answer your question in a direct way, we do not know whether the virus is still there in your heart, in your vessels, in your brain. It may be there, but it may be just a sort of trace of the virus that the body believes is still there. Thank you for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense, but it's also really terrifying. Oh, yes, yes, it, it's terrifying because we, we cannot eliminate the virus to stop the disease. The virus may not be there anymore, but your immune system got crazy, got mad, and how to stop it. We have very potent medications to stop the immune system, but then you have to pay for it. If your immune system gets weaker, then you are very susceptible to infections, to cancer, to tumors. So 
This is a very thin line between damage and advantage here. Thank you so much, Dr. Fedorovsky. This has been great. Really, really fascinating. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to me. Next, we'll be exploring the cardiovascular symptoms of long COVID. Long COVID can affect many of our body's organs. In fact, last year, we explored long neuro-COVID on the podcast. That's how long COVID affects the brain. Why not scroll back and check out that episode later? Some patients with cardiovascular long COVID, which is what we'll focus on today, experience symptoms of POTS. Now that is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Before COVID-19, few doctors were recognising POTS, so it often went untreated. It still does today. Dr Fedorovsky, who we just heard from, is also an expert in POTS, so we asked him a few extra questions about it before he left. I asked him how his POTS clinic has been affected by the pandemic. Before the start of the pandemic, these patients were not so many. They were referred to me while I was working at the University Hospital in Malmö. And we had a cohort of three, four hundred such patients. Now, when the pandemic came, the number of these patients with suspected and even confirmed POTS has doubled or tripled. So they are much more frequently found now than before. That's an intriguing finding, which we're going to explore in more detail. Joining me in conversation are... My name is Leslie Cavey. I'm from Warwickshire in the UK. I'm a very recently retired GP and I currently lecture at Birmingham City University and I am chair of POTS UK, the national charity for patients with postural tachycardia syndrome. My name is Tay Chong. I'm at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and I've been running Johns Hopkins POTS clinic program before pandemic. My name is Angela Vasquez. I have long COVID and I have had POTS since I got sick in March 2020. Angela is also the president of Body Politic, which runs an online support group for long COVID patients. Thank you all for joining me. Professor Cavi, let's start with you. What actually is POTS? POTS or postural tachycardia syndrome, also known as postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome is a chronic health condition. To be diagnosed with POTS, a patient should experience an increase in heart rate of at least 30 beats per minute, um, 40 beats per minute in teenagers on standing. And that increase in heart rate should be persistent and it should be associated with symptoms of POTS. Dr Chung, you've been running a POTS clinic like Dr Fedorowski before and after the pandemic. Dr Fedorowski said patient numbers have doubled or tripled. What differences have you noticed? I can't really say the number, but we have had at least twice or three times more numbers of referrals to our POTS clinic program. So actually I had to start additional clinic for post-COVID POTS to address those increased needs since the pandemic. Can I come to you, Angela, now? So you've been diagnosed having POTS as part of your long COVID, which you've had for nearly two years now. Can you just take us through what symptoms you experience? Yes, my POTS started as 
uh, very severe adrenaline rushes along with a racing heart, especially when I was standing. I would get so nauseous and dizzy from all of the adrenaline. It felt like a panic attack, but it would come out of nowhere. And my POTS now is fairly well managed. So I do get some adrenaline rushes, but they're much fewer and far between. I have to keep my blood pressure up with uh, salt and a lot of water. So I take salt pills throughout the day to keep my blood pressure even. But one of the longstanding symptoms that I'm still dealing with are increased migraines. So the longer I spend upright during the day, the the more likely I'll, I'll end the day with a pretty severe migraine. When you first had POTS, were your symptoms affected by you standing up? They were almost always while I was standing, and then they started coming at night. So I would wake up in the middle of the night with my heart racing, I'd be short of breath, and I'd be so full of adrenaline that I would be shaking as if I had had too much coffee. You're both nodding there. Is that a similar story that you've heard, Professor Cavi? Yes, I, I hear patients reporting symptoms very similar to the ones that Angela's just described. Yes, I agree. I think POTS, the name, can be a little misleading to some people who are not familiar with POTS. It's not about just standing and tachycardia. Uh, They have a lot of GI symptoms, sleeping problems, exercise intolerance, and other symptoms too. So these are very typical presentation. So Angela, I was going to ask you, you have other symptoms of long COVID. I know there's quite a lot. Could you just tell us what the worst ones used to be or what they are now? Definitely the the worst now is probably my migraines and nerve pain in um, my head and face. So I have something called occipital neuralgia, uh, where the nerves in the back of my neck are extremely painful. And I would say prior to being well (laughs) medicated, I was having severe allergic reactions to things I had never had reactions to. So anaphylaxis after every meal, I've since been diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, which is a a sort of allergy immunology uh, dysfunction um, that was triggered by COVID. And finally, I also had uh, many, many cardiovascular symptoms. At one point, I had severe D-dimer, which is a blood clotting marker. Uh, I was five times the upper limit And that was accompanied by severe shortness of breath, swelling in my feet and legs. But because this was so early in the pandemic, this was around May 2020, they screened me for a blood clot in my lungs and then sent me home. Uh, I later came to find out that I likely had deep vein thrombosis, as well as several transient ischemic attacks or TIAs, mini strokes, basically. Um, I survived all of that from home. Gosh, just remind us your age. I'm 34 years old and I was a runner before I got sick. So the morning of my first symptoms, which was loss of smell, I had gone for a run, a three mile run. Do you have fatigue as well? I did for quite a while. That was one of my first symptoms. However, I think probably about three or four months after I first got sick, The fatigue really gave way to adrenaline, that tired but wired. So I would say one thing I didn't mention before is that one of my other persistent symptoms that I 
barely getting a handle on is insomnia. I just, I don't sleep. (laughs) So some people get fatigue and then some people have this adrenergic rush and insomnia. How typical is that, Dr. Chung? It is very typical. Like I said, one of the unique things about POTS is that symptoms change phases over time a little bit. They don't have symptoms randomly. They usually have certain set of symptoms. And within that clusters, they change phases over time. So it's very common that people have sleeping problem uh, and then it turns into more of GI nausea, adrenaline rush, and then more orthostatic tachycardia. So those are very typical. Professor Kavi. Well, yeah, it's much the same, really, that uh, we tend to find that patients can feel very tired at the same time as having these adrenaline rushes. And even one symptom can fluctuate quite a lot over time. So it makes it very difficult for people to be able to plan working and and other activities on their lives because they just don't know from day to day how they're going to feel. Angela? You're nodding. (laughs) Yes, that's very true. It is hard to tell when I am going to need what I call surge capacity. So I I have a very strict sort of pacing regimen where I, you know, break up my tasks. I work full time. Um, I'm upright at my desk a lot. And so I live a really rigid life of taking my salt pills every so often, making sure I have my water bottle next to my desk. But if I have something super stressful, like recording this podcast today or, you know, a big meeting at work, or if I get in an argument with my spouse, all of that stress sort of hits me much harder than it used to pre-pandemic. And I feel like that definitely worsens my POTS. And so on the one hand, I'll get, you know, surges of adrenaline and I won't be able to sleep at night, but then I'll wake up and be just exhausted. So that definitely a cycling of adrenaline and then big crashes afterwards. One of the things I'm interested in is whether or not POTS with long COVID is different to POTS before the pandemic. Dr. Chung, have you seen any difference in the profile of patients coming through? So I get the question all the time. And from my perspective, actually, no. The typical presentation of POTS, the long COVID syndrome, uh, for the most part, of course, when you say long COVID syndrome, it's very broadly defined at this point. Anybody who can have any symptoms longer than two, three months, we can define them as having long haul COVID or post COVID syndrome. But most people that I see presenting with chronic fatigue and these autonomic features, they're essentially the same as regular POTS patients. And have you noticed any difference in the age of your patients? Dr. Fedorovsky was saying he thought his patients were becoming a little bit older. Oh, interesting, because I felt the same way. Typical POTS patients, they're a little younger. Their first onset is more late teens and early 20s. Whereas a lot of long COVID patients, not by much, we're not seeing very much elderly patients, but just approximately 30s and 40s and 50s are those typical age group that I see in my long COVID POTS clinic. Professor Kavi, is that something you've been aware of? Um, It's not something from the charity perspective that I've particularly noticed. It's not something we've counted. I think it raises an interesting question, though, as to whether it's a real increase in older people having POTS or whether 
is just not being picked up in younger people because certainly in the UK, a lot of people don't think about POTS. I think they do think about it a little bit more because COVID's raised the profile. But in terms of paediatricians and GPs, for example, they often don't think about it. And then there's very little, almost nothing in the way of services for people in the UK with POTS that are under the age of 16. So I just don't know whether it's there and we're missing it or it's not there. If I can add as well, I am actually the the president of a support group called Body Politic. And our support group currently has 15,000 members on an app called Slack. And we're a global support group. And I would say that many conversations around POTS, including myself, patients are sort of reflecting on how they may have had signs of autonomic dysfunction prior to getting sick. So in my case, for example, I've always felt like I had low blood pressure, would often get dizzy when I stood, and always felt like I had just high levels of adrenaline. I was very sensitive to adrenaline rushes and not anything that I ever noticed or even mentioned to a doctor until it sort of exploded once I got sick with COVID. Professor Covey, you were nodding. Yes, I hear patients often saying that they had milder symptoms beforehand, but they weren't so troublesome. They perhaps didn't consult about them. And then it's a bit like the patient having a a loaded gun and COVID is the trigger that sets it off. And then suddenly they develop much worse symptoms and end up having to seek help to manage them. Thank you. Let's move on to look at what the causes of POTS could be. I asked Dr Fedorovsky whether or not he felt POTS is caused by damage to blood vessels or damage to nerves. I think that both may be right. The vagus nerve may be affected directly in some inflammatory way. The vagus nerve is part of the autonomic parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system. Its effects are widespread. The vagus nerve travels from the brain to the heart, lung and gut and impacts on the muscles surrounding our blood vessels. It's also responsible for slowing down the heart rate. And the autoimmune system may cause some damage to the vagus nerve. Then the vagus nerve or vagus nerve receptors or let's say parasympathetic receptors may be blocked, damaged. Muscarinic receptors in the heart may be damaged. Muscarinic receptors are receptors for the rest and digest nervous system. The other part of the autonomic nervous system is the fight or flight adrenaline driven system. If that adrenaline fueled response dominates, you get very fast heart rates or diarrhea and fast breathing. The muscarinic receptors in the heart may be damaged. If you stop them, you will get very high heart rate. Then as far as endothelium is concerned, we may have both direct mechanisms where the virus was dead and it's eliminated and the body is trying to fight the virus, which is not there and is causing damage to endothelium. Or that there are some receptors in the vessels that are very important how it works. And then if they are stopped by the direct action on this receptor caused by immune system, then you will get the damage of the endothelium as well. So both processes may be there you put the puzzles together to see the face. So some people say, oh, this is just the ear. No, this is the nose. And then another one say, no, this is chin. But if you put the puzzles together, you will see the face of POTS. 
So Dr. Fedorovsky seems to be of the view that the symptoms of cardiovascular long COVID are due to direct infection and attack by the immune system, causing damage to the nervous system, the blood vessels and the heart. Professor Kavi, let me come to you. What are your thoughts about the causation of POTS in long COVID? I think we don't know. I think that a lot more work needs to be done to investigate this. And if we can unravel it in long COVID, it might actually help to unravel the issue in non-COVID POTS patients as well. I mean, certainly the symptom profile seems to be the same, but whether the actual pathophysiology is identical, I don't think we know. And I think the other issue is that there are probably several pathophysiologies in non-COVID POTS. Sometimes patients can have more than one, you know, they might be hypovolemic. There's some evidence of autoimmune problems, there's genetic issues as well that have been identified. And so sometimes you find that there's more than one pathophysiology acting in the same patient. Angela, can I just come back to you then? What you're hearing there, is that your understanding of what caused your POTS? I would say I agree in that I think there are probably many drivers of my POTS. One of the best ways I've heard to describe POTS is that it's like a fever. And so many things can happen in your body to cause you to get a fever. So I think many things are happening in my body and other long COVID patients that are presenting as POTS. For myself, when my mast cell activation syndrome is flaring, when I'm having more allergic symptoms, my POTS is much worse. And this is probably for a variety of reasons. I tend to swell. So my blood vessels are leaking a lot more when I have more of this inflammation happening. I'm also dumping a lot more adrenaline to try to keep my blood pressure up during allergic reactions. And I will also say that I think the autonomic dysfunction, at least for me, is probably driving a lot of the pushing and crashing that I do. I have a lot of symptoms of myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME, uh, CFS. It's formerly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And I have definitely noticed a pattern in myself and in others where I'll get really amped up. The adrenaline is going, it keeps me going and going and going, and then I crash. And what a crash looks like for me is a lot of brain fog, dizziness, my POTS is worse, my sleep is much worse. So I think there are, at least for me and many of the patients that I've talked to in the support group, a lot of things can trigger or amplify our POTS symptoms. So I imagine that there's some sort of self-reinforcing cycle at some point for many of us that a lot of things will trigger the POTS, but the POTS seems to be self-reinforcing. So damaging nerves, you can damage nerves by restricting their blood flow and vice versa. If your nerves are damaged, they're not going to be communicating with your blood vessels very well. I think there's been quite a small study actually looking at patients with long COVID and patients with POTS and they did some skin biopsies on these patients and they found evidence of small nerve damage in the long COVID POTS patients but not in the control group which was quite interesting but I think that study and also the one that you referred to where there was some evidence of damage to the vagal nerve they're all very very small 
studies. And some of them are really quite hard to do as well because the facilities to test for things like muscarinic receptor antibodies and, you know, to do skin biopsies and things are, are just not widely available. I did have a biopsy done to test for small fiber neuropathy. It was inconclusive. They showed some problems with my sweat glands. And so that's one of my other symptoms is actually I don't sweat anymore. So I have a really hard time with particularly heat intolerance. So the biopsy sort of confirmed my experience that I have a problem with sweating and communicating with my nerves to trigger that reflex. I'm glad you actually got a skin biopsy and you mentioned the skin biopsy. In fact, the sweat gland innervation is part of our sympathetic nervous system. And the same sympathetic nervous system is really responsible for a blood vessel regulation. So the fact that you cannot sweat and there's damage in the sweat gland innervation not only means something about your temperature regulation, but it strongly suggests that sympathetic nervous system that's regulating uh, cardiovascular system or blood vessels are dysfunctional as well. Now, I acknowledge that the term POTS, MECFS, MASIC activation syndrome, there's a lot of alphabet soups describing some aspects of this whole symptoms and syndromes. I, th- I think our medical community at this point is really not good at having good name to label this whole condition. But at the same time, I don't think this is a whole separate different thing. I don't think anybody develops all these rare conditions once at the same time, right after the COVID infection. We're maybe talking about the same thing, but depending on what we are focusing on, we may have a different names for it. Further down, you know, pathophysiology of this, whatever this is, POTS, MECFS, MCAS, I still think maybe it's my bias opinion as a neuromuscular doctor, uh, seeing a lot of autoimmune conditions. I still think it's probably autoimmune inflammation to autonomic nervous system. After COVID virus, our immune system is confused. And even after COVID virus is gone, our immune system thinks we still have COVID virus, which maybe our autonomic nervous system looks similar to that of COVID virus and keeps inflaming it. Whether it's sympathetic nervous system, vagus nervous system, I think there are some small studies suggesting both. Also, I know there's some small autopsy study that showed inflammation and vagal innervation to the heart as well. So it could be both. Maybe it can be one another. Uh, we still have to wait until we see the full picture, but we kind of know that we are dealing with autonomic nerve dysfunction, maybe immune-mediated in nature. How can we be certain that the new cases of POTS are an effect of COVID-19 rather than a long-term effect of a severe respiratory infection or time spent in hospital? Actually, that's relatively easy because, first of all, just about 90% of long COVID patients who develop POTS didn't have pneumonia or severe COVID infection. To a certain degree, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. We can rule out those long-term consequences of lung disease, relatively easily. Professor Cavi. When you said due to being in hospital, were you thinking along the lines of deconditioning as being a potential cause for it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that that has been proposed both in COVID POTS and non-COVID POTS. But certainly our experience at the charity and, and from the results of a very large survey we did 
a lot of the patients were actually very, very active before they, they got their POTS, which came on very, very suddenly. So certainly my view is that it's more of a compounding factor once the POTS has started rather than it being a purely causative factor. Yeah, if I could also add that for me personally, I tried to exercise through many of my first POTS symptoms and that absolutely made me worse. And so for me, I've experienced deconditioning. I'm a lifelong athlete and I have had many injuries. I broke my ankle and was couch bound for several months and have never experienced the types of POTS symptoms that I experienced during that long period of being pretty immobile that this felt fundamentally different than deconditioning, which I have experienced before as an athlete. If I can add just a little more, I really don't like the term deconditioning, especially when it is used by some doctors uh, in a kind of condescending ways. Because when I first started POTS clinic, a lot of my colleague doctors kept saying, it may be just a deconditioning. It's not a proper view disease. My response was, first of all, then what is the pathophysiology of deconditioning? Define deconditioning. What do you even mean by that? And secondly, if deconditioning is that bad enough to make patients debilitated, disabled, then we, we have to really do something about this, right? So, yeah, I think it's a really poorly defined term. I think it should be used very carefully, especially by doctors. Angela, uh, so for our listeners, Angela clapped there. So, Angela, you started talking about treatment and what works. So if POTS is vascular, neurological and immune in nature, where does that leave us with treatment? Dr. Chung, what do you think the best treatment is? Well, it's a good and bad news about this. As an autoimmune disease, maybe it's a chronic problem. I mean, we'll see. Like when COVID happened just about two years ago, so... Hopefully, this is something that over a long time that may go away, but oftentimes autoimmune diseases are very chronic condition, so you cannot stay with them for a very long time. Another slightly better news is that still there are a lot of other things we can even try. There are a lot of different medications. Uh, physical exercise is critically important, and there are a lot of good science rationale behind exercise treatment. Of course, I noticed that exercise intolerance, post-exercise malaise or flares are very real, which is why it's so difficult to do it. But it doesn't mean that we cannot do it. It's actually really helpful too. And there are a lot of other medications to increase blood volume to help with those patients. I think fundamentally, I really want to emphasize is that we need to have better research to show biomarkers. And that also turn it into use of some immune modulating drug to address more fundamentals of this uh, you know, condition. Professor Kavi, what's your take on treatment? In terms of how I as a GP would approach management of patients and what we recommend through the charity, we normally, as Angela described, encourage patients to have increased salt if it's not contraindicated and, and increased fluids. Compression clothing can be helpful. Um, some people find that dietary measures such as avoiding very heavy meals, refined carbohydrate are useful. There are lots of other dietary measures that are adopted by patients, but there really, again, hasn't been a great deal of work to research this properly. You can use postural manoeuvres to prevent presyncope and fainting, such as activating skeletal muscle 
and exercise, we usually recommend that that's done in a horizontal position initially and often starting at a low level. But as mentioned previously, exercise intolerance is a huge problem for patients and can leave them wiped out for sometimes days after. And if all that doesn't work after about three to six months, then we would perhaps look at medication. But some of the more severely affected patients do need to have medication brought in at an earlier stage. Just to finish off, Angela, what's worked for you? <laughs> yeah, I would say the order of operations in terms of treatment for me seems to be extremely important because I not only had exercise intolerance, which to me means it's immediately hard to exercise. You know, my heart rate would skyrocket. I'd get really short of breath and a little dizzy and nauseous. But then there's, as Dr. Chung said, my post-exertional malaise. So even as I got better, I would be able to exercise and then my symptoms would flare for several days after exercise. So I, I think it's really important. And I have been working with my doctors to help me sort of manage both, both improving my exercise tolerance, but also finding a level of movement and energy expenditure that doesn't crash me over the hours and days after exercise. And so I found for me, the order of operations was first manage my pots with salt and water, compression, trying to stay horizontal for as much as possible, and then managing my mast cell symptoms, which I've said for me really exacerbate my POTS. And only once my mast cell symptoms were pretty well managed, did I find that I could start thinking about exercise. So now I go for daily walks and I also do some stretching and some yoga. I can only do that now because the inflammation for me has been much better managed and I don't experience now post-exertional malaise. So I am pretty certain that if I had started with exercise right away, that I, I would have failed pretty miserably. Angela Vasquez, Dr. Tay Chung and Professor Leslie Covey, thank you so much for being in conversation with Medical News today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks also to Dr. Artur Fedorowski and Medical News Today's Maria Kahoot. You can read more about long COVID, cardiovascular disease and POTS on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again soon with a discussion about multiple sclerosis. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit and this is a iViz radio production for Medical News Today. Music